Ready? Born ready. You are tuning in to another episode of your favorite political podcast, Where the Party At? I am your host, Saba Long, and let's dive in. We've got a lot to talk about. This is the final full week before the election. Can't believe it. It's already here. The election is November 8th. Today's Tuesday. What's going on? Why don't we start with Atlanta? So Mayor Andre Dickens had three town halls in three different parts of the city over a week or so. I mentioned last week that I tried to attend the one in Buckhead and it was overcrowded and literally people standing outside the door not able to get in. The final one was in the Summerhill area and it was the lowest attended, which is unfortunate. Summerhill is an area of town that is growing and changing rapidly Although I will say, I think part of the problem is that this was held on a Thursday, which you guys know is one of the busiest nights for events in the city of Atlanta. You know, one thing the mayor said in the Q&A portion of the Summerhill Town Hall is that he's interested in citywide participatory budgeting. I believe we've talked about this on the pod before a long time ago, but just to refresh your memory, Participatory budgeting is when a city government gives the public a say in how the city's budget is spent, or at least a say on how a portion of the budget is spent. Now, we already have this in Atlanta. Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki has done participatory budgeting for residents in his council district, which is District 2. So the mayor has said he's open to allocating a couple of million dollars for a citywide participatory budget. Now, maybe he was, by saying a couple of million, he didn't literally mean two million, because to give you some context, the city of Atlanta's budget for this year is 734 million. So $2 million is not even a drop in the bucket. Another thing the mayor's uh, office said is that they will be recruiting for a city of Atlanta youth advisory panel. I believe this is something new. Uh, They said they also want to include and engage parents. So we'll have to wait and see what that panel will do. How can people be part of the panel? Is it something that you have to be in the know for or can you apply? Uh, We'll see. The mayor brought back midnight basketball. He also talked about this as a way to keep kids out of trouble. I don't know if anyone has actually tracked the crime stats on the nights of midnight basketball to see, is there a reduction in crime in the city? I don't know. It'd be worth checking out. Uh, Speaking of crime, the mayor this week named interim chief Darren Sheerbaum as the permanent police chief. So Atlanta now has a new permanent police chief in Darren Sheerbaum who came from within the ranks. So he was not new to the city to APD. I did meet him a couple of months ago, but I haven't had a chance to have like a real in-depth conversation. We had a short exchange, but I look forward to hearing more about the chief and what his plans are, because we know 
there's both actual crime, but also a perception of crime. I think there's also a lot of things that APD can encourage the public to do, such as not leaving valuables visible in your car uh, and then being upset when your car is broken into. I can't tell you how many times I have seen and heard of this happening in the city. Uh, the last thing I'll mention about the town halls is that, again, the mayor mentioned this as of today, Tuesday, uh, Atlanta Medical Center is officially closed for business. It is officially closed. Grady Hospital is now the only level one trauma center in the entire city. So again, say your prayers, eat your vegetables, and hope that you never have a level one trauma uh, and you need to go to the hospital because we only have one and you just got to pray that if that happens, that you are not that far away. All right, y'all, let's talk about the statewide stuff, the elections. I remain amazed, and I probably shouldn't, but about how flawed a candidate Herschel Walker is. I know it doesn't matter, and I've said it before. I said it on the live pod. This election is about power. It is about control of the United States Senate. Republicans need to flip just one seat to remove the Democratic majority. So what about Herschel? If you haven't already heard, this got some media attention, but it hasn't been plastered all over the internet and TV like I thought it would be. Another woman has come forth to say that Herschel paid for an abortion. So this is the second one that we know of. And of course, Herschel has denied the claim just like he has denied previous claims, even though in the previous one, the woman that came forward is the mother of one of his children. Now, this second woman has asked to remain anonymous, and she's being represented by Gloria Allred, who some people kind of see her as an ambulance chaser. But nonetheless, she presented a sympathy slash get well card from Herschel, and it was signed in that H just like the other woman. But she did not show a receipt from the abortion. So you know, maybe it's one of those things that will just kind of die. I think at the end of the day, Republicans are going to vote for Herschel no matter what. Uh, but the question in this election particularly is what do independents do? So another statewide conversation, the debate. Stacey Abrams and Governor Brian Kemp had one final debate. So they've had two debates total. That was Sunday night on WSB-TV. And this one was different because it was just the two of them, and it did not include the Libertarian candidate, Shane Hazel, who was a bit of a rabble-rouser in their first debate. Now, Kemp and Abrams spent nearly 15 minutes just talking about abortion, which I've got to imagine helps Stacey because it's the last thing Republicans want to be talking about. Take a listen to this exchange. Press you a bit on that. If the legislature passes a more restrictive abortion law, abortion bill, would you sign that bill? Well, I, I'm not going to count on, uh, you know, say yes or no to any specific piece of legislation with actually seeing exactly uh, what it's doing. It's not my desire to go move the needle any further uh, on this issue. We've been dealing with this issue for three years. That's where the General Assembly was. I personally don't see a need to go back. But when you're governor, you have to deal with all kind of 
legislative issues that are out there. So we'll look at those when the time comes. Uh, but again, my focus is going to be on helping Georgians fight through the 40-year high Joe Biden inflation that's been caused by disastrous policies in Washington, D.C. And we're going to be our first order of business is going to do a, do another tax rebate to do property tax relief to help Georgians to be able to cope with going to the grocery store or the gas pump. And so let's be clear. He did not say he wouldn't. We know that he has praised the Texas bounty system that allows neighbors to make $10,000 by reporting on women. We know that under the law that he signed, women can be investigated for miscarriages and other pregnancy losses, and that 52 counties have said that they indeed will pursue those investigations because they don't think they have a choice. We know that under this governor, women are in danger. Georgia is already number one for maternal mortality, and it is only going to get worse when women are forced to carry pregnancies, when one in five women in Georgia does not have health insurance before pregnancy, will be compelled to carry that pregnancy to term. And while there has indeed been improvements in Medicaid expand in Medicaid to provide access for women during pregnancy on day the first birthday of that child, that health care goes away. Brian Kemp does not have a plan for the lives of the women who are being forced to carry pregnancies to term that are unwanted pregnancies. But more importantly, he refuses to protect us. He refuses to defend us. And yet he defended Herschel Walker, saying that it, he didn't want to be involved in the personal life of his running mate. But he doesn't mind being involved in the personal lives and the personal medical choices of women in Georgia. So my big question is, how many folks will actually cast their votes exclusively on the issue of abortion? We will see. All right, let's move into some of the national stories. I mentioned last week that Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, by the way, will certainly be reelected, she will greatly benefit from Republicans regaining control of the House. And we know that she and others in the Freedom Caucus plan to go after Joe Biden, after the Attorney General Merrick Garland, after the head of the Department of Homeland Security. And she also said this last week on Steve Bannon's show that she's also, along with her colleagues, planned to go after the companies that stopped donating to Republicans immediately after the January 6th insurrection. Take a listen to what she said on Steve Bannon's show. Corporations, the corporations have have anything to fear from a uh, from a populist house, ma'am. Well, let's just put it like this, Steve. All these big corporations, you know, you know what they did after January sixth. Um, it didn't affect me because I don't take their money anyways. I don't take any corporate money. I don't take any uh, any lobbyist money. I don't need it. I'm supported by the American people. Gratefully, thank God I am. I, I, that, and that's how I want to keep it. But you know what they did after January 6th, Steve? They stopped donating. They stopped, All the lobbyists, all the big corporations stopped donating to a whole bunch of my Republican colleagues that they used to donate to. They said, oh, no, we can't support you because of the, the big lie or whatever they want to call it. So I want you to know, and this is something that they should all know, that's not going to be forgotten by a whole bunch of my Republican colleagues um, because that was really ridiculous and wrong. But yeah, there is going to be investigation. I hope I'm wrong, but it seems like we will have a revenge Congress that will really be focused on repealing things that the Biden administration has put forth. And I'm curious to see what they do that's actually for the public, for the American people. All right, there's a big story that dropped a few days ago that I don't 
know if you've seen or heard of it, so I'm just going to highlight it. Um, ProPublica and Vanity Fair teamed up on a multi-month investigative project about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a long read. You can check it in the show notes. They cover, in part, an investigation by Republicans on the United States Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, otherwise known as HELP. So again, this is a Senate committee, but the investigation is being done by the minority party, by the minority staff, which are Republicans. So an interim report by this minority oversight staff was released on Thursday of last week, and it concludes that the pandemic was, and I quote, more likely than not the result of a research-related incident. Now, from the report, why they say this, according to presentations made to the World Health Organization by the People's Republic of China government officials and scientists, Again, this is directly from the report. They say that in early 2020, none of the animals at the market when it was closed, remember the original thought was that COVID uh, was originated and it started at a market in China. So they are saying that none of the animals at the market when it was closed in the market supply chain or in China's animal farming industry were affected with the virus. However... An evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona, Michael Warbury, Michael, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, please forgive me. Uh, He was quoted in the ProPublica article, and he said, and I quote, our two recent papers established that a natural zoonotic origin is the only plausible scenario for the origin of the pandemic. Okay. Now, others have said that China never publicly released any testing for most animal species sold at the market. China's official line is that no live mammals were sold at this market any time in 2019. So if that is indeed true, then someone is lying, whether it's the United States government, the Chinese government, scientists, something is not adding up here. Now, I just want to remind you of what President Trump said in April of 2020. Uh, He said that he had seen intelligence that led him to believe that the virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Take a listen to what Trump said. Again, this is in April of 2020. China is buying billions of dollars worth of our product, our farm product and other product, manufacturing product, and it's been a great deal. But then we noticed a virus. And it's not acceptable what happened. It came out of China, and it's not acceptable what happened. And now what we're doing, Jim, is we're finding out how it came out. Different forms. You know, you've heard all different things. You've heard three or four different concepts as to how it came out. We should have the answer to that in the not-too-distant future, and that will determine a lot how I feel about China. We're looking at exactly where it came from, who it came from, how it happened, separately and also scientifically. So we're going to be able to find it. And my question is, have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And I think that the World Health Organization 
should be ashamed of themselves because they're like the public relations agency for China. And this country pays them almost $500 million a year, and China pays them $38 million a year. And uh, whether it's a lot or more, it doesn't matter. It's still, they shouldn't be making excuses when people make horrible mistakes, especially mistakes that are causing hundreds of thousands of people around the world to die. I think the World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves. And again, back to this interim report that again was conducted by Republicans in the Senate committee. And I quote here, the lack of transparency from government and public health officials in the People's Republic of China with respect to the origins of the coronavirus prevents reaching a more definitive conclusion. And then they go on to add that The conclusion could change if more independently verifiable information became available. So they are saying based on what we know and what we have, we have evidence to say that this was born out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but that is still a bit inconclusive because of a lack of transparency from the Chinese government. Now, in January of 2021, the World Health Organization sent a team to China to investigate the origins of COVID-19. But we know that at least a couple of members of the team were denied entry. But China has insisted uh, that it was cooperating with the World Health Organization investigation. Uh, You can take a listen to this interview with a German TV station. Joining me for more is Victor Gao. He's from the Center for China and Globalization, a think tank close to the Chinese Communist Party. Victor Gao, welcome. Good to have you back on the program. Thank you for having me. Mr. Gao, how committed is the Chinese government to ensuring the WHO team are able to carry out their work fully? I think China as a whole, the Chinese government and the Chinese people are fully committed to working closely with the WHO team of scientists to uh, study and analyze what happened in Wuhan in December 2019 and what exactly is the origin of this virus. This is very important. I think the Chinese people want to know the truth. Mankind want to know the truth. And then again, back to the Republican report. According to the report, a deputy from the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, was sent to the Wuhan lab on November 19th of 2019 regarding, quote, a complex and grave situation facing biosecurity work. Now, there appears to be a discrepancy in how the documents about that meeting are being translated. So native speakers and expert translators have come out to say that the folks who produced the Senate Republicans report and the reporters who worked on this from ProPublica and Vanity Fair have mistranslated the documents, which are in original Chinese. And there's this one sentence in particular that folks are harping on, and it reads, Every time this has happened, the members of the Xingdine Lab BSL-4 party branch have always run to the front line, and they have taken real action to mobilize and motivate other research personnel. That's the sentence. Now, the correct translation, folks are saying, is that party leaders are saying they will lead by example and they will be the first to take on demanding work. Not that 
the line every time this has happened, that there have indeed been multiple instances of a leak or something like this. So there's some discrepancy around the translation of the Chinese documents. You know, another interesting thing is the full genetic sequence of the virus was posted in January 11th of 2020 by a professor in China. And the professor did this in direct violation of the Chinese government. His brave actions helped reduce the amount of time it took to create a vaccine. So all in all, Senate Republicans from the HELP Committee released a report, an interim report. They say there is more to come. There seems to be a discrepancy in the translation of the Chinese documents. So at the end of the day, here we are, November of 2022, and COVID continues to remain an issue of deep political division. And no one seems to be able to say with absolute certainty of how the virus was started, which to me is bonkers. Uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, this is this pandemic has cost an, an inordinate amount of lives. It has cost us money. It has cost us energy, uh, stress so much. And it's unfortunate to say the least that we don't have a clear understanding of what happened and who was involved. And other big news, we'll save the bulk of this for another podcast, but I do want to mention that the Supreme Court is right now hearing an affirmative action case involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Right now, the assumption is that the conservative justice on the court will do away with what is called race-conscious college admissions. Take a listen to an example and a question posed by the newest judge, Kentaji Brown Jackson. And so what I'm worried about is that the rule that you're advocating, um, that in the context of a holistic review process, a university can take into account and value all of the other background and personal characteristics of other applicants, but they can't value race. What I'm worried about is that that seems to me to have the potential of causing more of an equal protection problem than it's actually solving. And the reason why I get to that possible conclusion is thinking about two applicants who would like to have their family backgrounds credited in this applications process, and I'm hoping to get your reaction to this hypothetical. The first applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family has been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, and I would like uh, you to know that I will be the fifth generation to graduate from the University of North Carolina. I now have that opportunity to, to do that, and given my family background, it's important to me that I get to attend this university. I want to honor my family's legacy by going to this school. The second applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, but they were slaves and never had a chance to attend this venerable institution. As an African-American, I now have that opportunity, and given my family, family background, it's important to me to attend this university. I want to honor my family legacy by going to this school. Now, as I understand your no-race conscious admissions rule, these two applicants 
would have a dramatically different opportunity to tell their family stories and to have them count. The first applicant would be able to have his family background considered and valued by the institution as a part of its consideration of whether or not to admit him, while the second one wouldn't be able to because his story is in many ways bound up with his race and with the race of his ancestors. So I want to know, based on how your rule would likely play out in scenarios like that, why excluding consideration of race in a situation in which the person is not saying that his race is something that has uh, impacted him in a negative way, he just wants to have it honored, just like the other person has their personal background family story honored. Why is telling him no not an equal protection violation? So again, we'll get into it probably next week once we've heard more oral arguments and heard the justices have a back and forth exchange as the case is being tried. I do want to highlight before we go to party starter and party pooper, a couple of big things that are happening overseas that you might just want to know. Uh, one is that Brazil just elected a new president, which will swing the, swing the country back from the far right to the left. Uh, the current president, Bolsonaro, was nearly defeated by a longtime political rival and a former president. President Biden immediately congratulated the interim or the president-elect, which was seen as a clear political move. Now, Bolsonaro is seen as quite Trumpian. And in fact, Trump essentially endorsed Bolsonaro's re-election bid. I'm taping this on a Monday. And so far, Bolsonaro has not conceded. That sounds familiar, I'm sure, to many of you. So we will have to wait and see what happens. Another thing is Putin looking for an off-ramp. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, said, and I quote, we are ready to talk with the West about reducing tensions, but only if there are realistic proposals based on an equal approach. Lavrov also said that the leadership of Russia, especially Putin, is still ready for negotiations regarding Ukraine. So I had mentioned in last week's pod that a number of progressives had written a letter to Biden encouraging him to actually negotiate and have conversations, um, President Biden, with Putin. But the question remains if that will happen. Um, and by the way, the progressive Democrats who wrote that letter actually rescinded it and said this letter was not for public consumption. It was something that we were noodling internally, just kind of an interesting aside. So will the United States negotiate? It seems like if any negotiations will happen, it will have to be between the United States and Russia on Ukraine's behalf. Now, one thing that has happened is Russia announced that it was going to suspend uh, its participation in a UN broker deal that allows Ukraine, which by the way is one of the top grain exporters in the entire world, to resume exporting grain. Basically, the hope was that Russia would allow these ships to pass through the Black Sea without any kind of attacks on them. I should note that you should care about this because a global grain shortage hurts poor countries, it hurts African countries, it hurts folks around the world who rely on grain from Ukraine 
And again, it's one of the top grain exporters in the entire world. We're talking about dozens of ships that are stuck, that are waiting on inspections. It's a real challenge. All right, on to party pooper and party starter. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. I suppose this is probably an easy party pooper for this week. I'm just going to say it's... You know, folks who are reacting to the Paul Pelosi attack, Paul Pelosi is the husband of Nancy Pelosi. He was, if you haven't already heard this, he was attacked by an intruder in their San Francisco home. Guy broke into the house, it appears, with a hammer. Um, He was asking for Nancy Pelosi and he brought zip ties to tie her up. He said that He wanted to break her kneecaps so that she would have to be rolled into Congress in a wheelchair and people could see what happens when you lie to the American public. You know, there's conversation about him being a QAnon person based on his social media engagement interactions. But really the party pooper, the folks who are using this attack as a way to further the depths of distrust and misinformation across the United States. And we're seeing this in media. We're seeing this certainly on social media. And normally, you know, you would think that an attack this vicious, the guy attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer. And this is weird. He attacked him with a hammer after the police arrived. That's when he was actually hit. Paul Pelosi was hit with a hammer after police arrived. Um, As of Monday, Paul Pelosi is still in the ICU. He had surgery done on his skull and I believe on his hand or hands, his arm. So, I mean, this is a guy who's in his 80s. And so, I mean, I think about my dad in his 70s and how, you know, how scared I'd be if something had happened to him like that and him being in the hospital. But regardless, a man was attacked by an intruder It was clearly politically motivated, and I don't understand why, regardless of your political party, you can't just say, hey, this is not okay. We've had a number of incidents of our folks have attacked elected officials, and they were politically motivated. Gabby Giffords, who almost died in Arizona, Steve Scalise, a Republican who was in the hospital for a long time from injuries sustained at a congressional baseball game. And he was attacked by some type of left-wing nut. Here you have Paul Pelosi. And it just goes on and on where you see the the types of just terrible social media, in particular, attacks on elected officials and candidates because people disagree with their political beliefs. Don't forget Mike Pence, who Republicans, uh, who right-wing Republicans put up gallows outside of D.C. saying, we want to hang Mike Pence. This is intra-party. This is from Republicans to Republicans threatening violence. Uh, And it's incredibly alarming. And we've seen in polls that a number of Americans have said 
democracy is a concern. Being able to protect American democracy is a concern. I'm curious to see how that shows up in the polling booth. And I'm curious to see how that shows up and how people actually engage with their elected officials. Let's get it started in What's rule number one? Party. All right. On a ending on a more positive note, our party starter is not necessarily a political person, but I do want to shout out Kali Greenwood, who was just named the CEO of MARTA. Kali has been the interim CEO since January after the previous CEO, Jeff Parker, died. Kali came to MARTA from Toronto. This was before the pandemic. By the way, Toronto is a beautiful city with a fantastic transit system, and that's where he'd previously worked. And I would just say one of the hardest jobs out right now, other than being a nonprofit person, is being a transit agency CEO, especially in a region that's, shall we say, not always pro-transit. So Marta is working on something right now called a bus network redesign. They have new transit lines that are going to be built in the next few years. There's ongoing conversation about Cobb County and Gwinnett County joining MARTA or at least investing heavily in public transit. And so I would say it is an incredibly difficult time to be a transit C- transit agency CEO, but there is a lot of opportunity. And so, you know, and a lot of room to move the court of public opinion to be pro-transit. So shout out to Kali. Uh, congratulations. And by the way, you may have seen this on like Instagram, Kali did indeed start his career as a bus driver. And so it's really cool that he has worked his way all the way up to the ranks of becoming CEO of a major transit agency. All right, y'all, that is today's show. This is the last show before election day. Well, technically we will have an election day show. That's Tuesday morning. But I do want to, of course, encourage you to go vote. I lamented this last week. The number of folks voting under 40 are is abysmally low in the number of folks voting about age 60, 65 and up is insanely high. And I just want to remind you that folks 40 and under can fundamentally shift this state, the city, the country, the county at every single level of government. You absolutely have the power to transform your community as you know it today. So please go vote. I'm going to put in the show notes a place to make sure you can check your where to vote on election day. You have to vote at your precinct right now. Early voting is going on until Friday, but on election day, you must vote at your precinct. All right, y'all, that is today's show. We're going to come back next week after the election and do a show to kind of break down who won, who lost, what are some things that we should be looking out for. And with that, it is a wrap. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, for listening. And until next time, you know where to party at.